In September 1974, a gaunt David Bowie crouched over a table covered with scraps of paper and lines of cocaine backstage at the Universal Amphitheater in Los Angeles. He struggled with a pair of scissors, audibly sighing as the blade sliced through various words and phrases. What I've used this for, more than anything else, is igniting anything that might be in my imagination, he said of the cut-up method, evangelized by William S. Burroughs. Framed by a flaming red pompadour, Bowie's pale, angular face was made more striking by the lack of brows above his eyes, themselves a mesmerizing mismatch of crystal blue and aquamarine. I've tried doing it with diaries and things, and I was finding out lots of amazing things about me, what I've done and where I was going. It seems that it would predict things about the future or tell me a lot about the past. I suppose it's a kind of Western tarot. Hello and welcome. I'm Douglas Bowles, and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com, and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's February 12th, 2023, and that means it's Tree Fort time again. The Tree Fort Music Fest is a five-day music and culture fest held at numerous venues throughout beautiful downtown Boise, Idaho, as well as Julia Davis Park, now being the new location of the main stage, March 22nd through 26th, featuring such performers as Unknown Mortal Orchestra, Margot Price, Cautious Clay, Annie DeFranco, Dinosaur Jr., Lady Ray, Old 97s, Tig Notaro, Pinback, Built to Spill, and many, many more. More information about and tickets can be found at treefortmusicfest.com. But something we all probably didn't know, except for today's guests, is that we owe all of this, Treefort Music Fest, Rock and Roll, etc., to William S. Burroughs. William S. Burroughs' fiction and essays are legendary, but his influence on music's counterculture has been less well documented until now. Casey Ray, author, professor, musician, and music business professional, published William S. Burroughs in the Cult of Rock and Roll in 2019, examining how one of America's most controversial literary figures altered the destinies of many notable and varied musicians. It reveals the transformation in music history that can be traced to Burroughs. A heroin addict and gay man, Burroughs rose to notoriety outside the conventional literary world. His masterpiece, Naked Lunch, was banned on the grounds of obscenity, but its nonlinear structure was just as daring as its content. Casey Ray brings to life Burroughs' parallel rise to fame among daring musicians of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, when it became a rite of passage to hang out with the author or to experiment with his cut-up techniques for producing revolutionary lyrics, as the Beatles and Radiohead did. Whether they tell of him exploring the occult with David Bowie, providing Lou Reed with gritty depictions of street life, or counseling Patti Smith about coping with fame, the stories of Burroughs' backstage impact will transform the way you see America's cultural revolution and the way you hear its music. 
It truly is an honor and pleasure to be welcoming Mr. Ray to the program today. How are you doing, Casey? Wonderful. It's um, a Super Bowl Sunday taping this, and it, it means absolutely nothing to me. So it's a wonderful day for me to talk <laughs> to you about this book and other things. Great. That's great. So, I mean, of course, we'll have to start probably with the cut up, but had you ever seen Sonic Youth? I saw Sonic Youth a little bit past what I would say their, you know, peak era of relevance for me uh, was, which would have been Daydream Nation and Gish era because I'm an I'm an old person. I, I suddenly find myself an old person. And so I saw them, I think, in the early 2000s. Okay. If I had to guess, it would probably be 2005. But they were very much still Sonic Youth. (laughs) They were incapable of not being Sonic Youth, you know, and it was quite a show. I think they were augmented by uh, Jim O'Rourke at that time. But, yeah, I I seem to remember being quite enveloped in their Sonic Youthiness. Yeah, I bring that up because last year Kim Gordon was one of the head headlines of the Treefort Music Fest, and so that was that was pretty special. But had you ever seen her perform? Just uh, as up a solo? until that point, oh, I have no, I haven't. Um, I really liked her solo record that she put out a little while ago. Gosh, it was a few years ago. Uh, now. I think it's 2019, maybe. Yeah, um, and I thought it was just a nice, um, you know, noisy slice of raw you know, punk art. <laughs> and um, I, I would expect nothing less. Um, yeah, well, she's a fascinating person. Definitely. Right. I, for whatever reason, in the 90s, I, I, they weren't to my taste, which is too bad because they're doing really great stuff. And so it's actually through your book, you know, William S. Burroughs, The Cult of Rock and Roll, that I kind of went in with an open mind to consider, because I was definitely like into... Fugazi and I could you can hear you know like they're of you know the same era and they're doing similar things but for whatever reason and maybe it's the the maybe just a little uh more atonal tunings that they were doing that just kind of um turned me yeah. off I guess. there's a certain New Yorkishness of it all as well um you know the sort of pretense of the New York art punk scene generally coming out of, you know, what started essentially as a writer's circle with Patti Smith and Richard Hell, who were both uh, early uh, Burroughs acolytes, as well as Tom Verlaine was also one of their running buddies, RIP Tom Verlaine of television. And, you know, so I think that a lot of what that sort of strain of uh, New York punk, which has a certain amount of conceptual pretension that you might not find uh, as much in, for example, Midwestern punk, you know, it's an acquired taste. And, you know, Fugazi seemed to have more of that kind of, you know, coming out of the DC hardcore scene, their ethos and their entire way of existing, you know, was very, very different than I think the, uh, you know, the more experimental, uh, um, pharmacologically positive, (laughs) you know punk rockers of the of the mid to uh, late 1970s in new york yeah did verlaine so you you it just amazed me when i so i knew some of the superficial things about you know 
Burroughs in that. So my book club just did Naked Lunch. Um, and so I knew about, you know, like my him. <laughs> How did that go, by the way? <laughs> oh, really great. It's 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 not uh, <laughs> it's a it's not a square book club by any stretch, and so you know we we tend to do things like Ulysses or um, in, uh, the Tunnel by William Gass or uh, the Recognitions. So it's it's fun, difficult books. Um, yeah, chewy, <laughs> <laughs> very chewy. But so like you know he he created the moniker of heavy metal, and he uh, you know. I knew about like Iggy pop using some of his words for lyrics, like lust for life, but I had no idea just how deep his connections to so many different musicians go. Did, was Tom Verlaine in that mix too? Did he end up mixing with just about everybody who was involved in that nascent um, New York city uh, punk rock scene uh, was aware of Burroughs. He was sort of a an icon of alien cool to them. And, you know, not coincidentally, he had just returned to New York at that time, um, which was, uh, I think, 1974. Uh, and then there was also a big convention called the Nova Convention at that time that had, you know, some of the folks who were involved in the art and punk and experimental scenes in New York. Uh, Patti Smith was there. Uh, Thurston Moore saw it as an impressionable teenager, you know? So I think that the seeds were planted for that era of connectivity. Um, of course, the story starts much earlier than that. And, you know, I'm re- it, it makes me really happy as an author, by the way, to hear that, you know, you investigated and and then started to you know develop a relation to you know um, music or musicians um that you found in the book uh because i do the same thing you know like and and i sometimes like to test my prior assumptions and occasionally that gets me in trouble because you know i'm writing a book about the grateful dead and uh, buddhism right now so <laughs> I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm really in the weeds but you know i like for example i was not a deadhead right <laughs> but you know so you have these strange encounters sometimes with with stuff and it can come in it from any direction and um i know that i've certainly uh you know in this era of like instant access sat with a you know a music history book um there was one uh, called Electric Eden that um, I'm spacing on the author's name, but it uh, is, you know, the British Isles kind of electric folk and weird folk and pagan folk kind of movements, you know, basically starting in the early to mid sixties and proceeding. Um, and, and, you know, it kind of triangulates all of this stuff. And so the joy of, of discovery, you know, it's, it's really meaningful, you know, if you can connect to a piece of music through, through other means like literature. And, you know, if you go right back to the sort of misty prehistory of um, these intersections in my book, you know, Burroughs was um, making an impression pretty early on. Um, the biggest names, probably the Beatles and the Stones, uh, who were uh, within his orbit in London. And, you know, Paul McCartney even basically hired him <laughs> to be part of the uh, audio R&D team in a, um, in a little um, basement studio 
uh, that was uh, in a flat owned by Ringo Starr. And this was right around the time that they were writing, that Paul was writing Eleanor Rigby, which in fact Burroughs witnessed him uh, compose. You know, and he remarked on it. Burroughs had no innate musicality. It was not a language that he spoke. He professed to be, you know, quite ignorant of it, both formally and as a fan. And as a listener, (laughs) his tastes, you know, were kind of mothballed. You know, they were frozen, an insect in amber. Um, You know, a lot of creaky, uh, you know, songs of the day in the 30s um, and early 40s, Um, popular songs. And so he didn't really relate to rock and roll in any way, except for uh, its medium as a disruptor, as a social disruptor. And within that, you know, there's a pantheon of folks who wanted to be associated with Burroughs because of his outre literary and lifestyle reputation, but whose, I guess, internal clocks and philosophies (laughs) <laughs> uh, belief systems, outlooks, sometimes resonated with Burroughs's in deeper ways. And I also try to explore some of those meanings in this book. Well, so you reminded me of another figure. And so I've often heard that there was mo- this moment in time where a lot of the folkies thought that somehow Bob Dylan was transformed in a single moment, like almost like he went down to the crossroads and sold his soul to the devil. But was it William S. Burroughs that he sold his soul to? Yeah, he just had coffee with Burroughs. <laughs> um, you know, it is interesting. Um, see, you know, Dylan was on a rapid um, uh, transformational trajectory that I think was already well underway but and with with dylan with everything dylan even researching any of these connections you're you're left to interpret a a, a puzzlingly vague array of symbols and signs <laughs> and there's really not a lot in the historical record that's going to tell you what the encounter was about except for what Burroughs said of dylan which usually you know he tends to comment on the industriousness of whomever he's talking to seemed like an industrious young man thought he was going to be a big uh, music star and you know as it turns out lo and behold but I think more interesting is to try to imagine what Dylan was <laughs> picking up from Burroughs <laughs> what strange alien kind of unspoken uh, signals or vibes um, because it does seem that, that seem like Dylan um, uh, sort of became even more freely associative in his prose. You know, he his book Tarantula came out at that time, and although he asserts it wasn't a cut-up work, it is littered with, you know, direct kinds of uh, nods to the Burroughs method, and also just the kind of um, vernacular. Of course, you know, Dylan's speaking with multiple vernaculars, uh, but but interestingly enough, the Burroughsian vernacular is one of them. I think in some ways what Burroughs represents for these musicians is liberation from whatever type of conceptual, artistic straitjacket they find themselves in. He represents freedom, you know, a radical type of freedom. And for some musicians, you know, that's like catnip. Yeah. Well, so who was, let's just go there. So who was Brian Geisen and what is the cut up technique, you know, and how did musicians use it? Um, in the in the uh, early 50s, 
Brian Geisen, who is a very interesting guy in his own right, was making large artworks, like really, really big canvas stuff, a lot of abstracts. But, you know, Burroughs um, was, his, you know, sort of, they, when they both lived in Morocco, they were kind of frenemies. <laughs> but, but then they, they bumped into each other again in Paris. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, the time was right. Their relationship kind of took flight from there. And Geisen was sort of a muse for Burroughs for, for much of his life much of Geisen's life anyway, Burroughs outlived him by a handful of years. Uh, And, you know, Geisen had some troubling traits. You know, he was a supremely, like, aggressive misogynist. And I'm not sure that Burroughs didn't really understand women (laughs) at all. He didn't relate to them at all. But I don't, you know, he had a lot of relationships and um, supporters in the arts in other medium, you know, like Ann Waldman and, and, and Patti Smith, for sure, Laurie Anderson, for example. And these are real relationships. So I, I kind of think that there's an element of that where it's like it really, really got encouraged by, by Brian Geisen. <laughs> He's a very bad influence in that regard. Of course, you know, Burroughs was already a bad influence on himself. He, you know, I don't want to gloss over, and I certainly don't in my book, the fact that he killed his wife. I do think it was not an intentional act. Um, you know, the infamous William Tell routine uh, where they were in uh, Mexico and, um they were just, you know, however many sheets to the wind and, and Benzedrine and, and whatever else. And um, she put the glass on her head and he took aim and missed the glass. And, you know, his, priv- his privilege and class got him out of that. Uh, I don't really think that, that he ever tra- completely transcended that. I can't speak to his internal state or of mind or, or anything like that in that regard. And, you know, there is some stuff in the record, you know, conversations that he had with his friend, poet Allen Ginsberg, and, you know, a smattering of more confessional uh, bits in, in his own oeuvre that kind of give you a, a sense of, of, of what that, you know, meant for him as the, as a perpetrator. Um, but, you know, so Brian Geisen is somebody who's kind of complicated on the, on the more interesting and potentially positive and generative side anyway, you know, he was just a fount of ideas and he had a very, um, he was a magical thinker. He believed that art had the ability to, um, affect reality. Um, and, you know, in some ways, I think that uh, Brian Geisen and William S. Burroughs <laughs> may have affected our reality uh, in, in ways that um, we're uh, not entirely able to, <laughs> to comprehend. The entire universe that we live in is a cut up of, of you know, memes and sound and image. Um, you know, in some cases weaponized, which was exactly what William S. Burroughs um, interest in the uh, cut up as an occult act or an occult performance, uh, a magical uh, ritual, if you will, that was precisely where his interests <laughs> lie. And here you have another interesting intersection with musicians like David Bowie, who 
you know, I think his interests in that regard are more than dilettantish at a time. They were probably obsessive and deeply unhealthy. <laughs> but, but, but he was certainly all in. Uh, and Genesis P. Orridge of Throbbing Gristle and the whole universe of industrial and post-punk acts who also became very interested in William S. Burroughs, not just as a, a you know, a sort of outlaw, outre, uh, you know, literary figure, but as a literal kind of uh, mystic, you know, like a, a living magician who can show them these operations and these operations cutting into reality, uh, reassembling it, and, oh, I don't know, potentially affecting its flow and course. And, or at, at the very least, destabilizing the edifices of consensus reality. Storm the citadels of the Enlightenment. That's what William S. Burroughs wrote. And now we have, you know, 8chan, 4chan, however many chan. And I think that some of these kind of art punks in the 80s, particularly in UK, were, you know, conducting magical operations, or so they thought, against the establishment in the way that their gurus, uh, William S. Burroughs and, and Brian Geisen, had uh, demonstrated. So Naked Lunch is... It's it's their um it's routines you know it's it's discrete scenes and there is some interest between like the juxtaposition from one routine to the next but it's not an actual cut up book, correct? Yeah, right? per se, right. I mean, it was assembled in a in a kind of um in a, in a group editing uh, fashion with um. Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac and I think possibly Gregory Corso, some, <laughs> some better beat scholar than I uh, can correct the record. But I think it was just a mad, mad dash. And, and Ginsberg was trying to get it ready for some type of publication. He thought it was, um, but it was actually quite a while before that even happened. So there is kind of a random access element to it. It, it doesn't follow, you know, any type of traditional, um, literary flow, and and it is you know as you mentioned it's a it's a the vignettes are almost like you know kind of obsessive you know fetishistic recurring visions, uh, and they just sort of keep coming back. But everything in William S. Burroughs's literature is highly morphable, and I think that in some ways that was another thing like a praxis, like an aesthetic approach, that you know some of the um, you know, more canny media artists like Genesis P. Orridge, who were really, you know, multimedia as much as they were music media uh, performers. And then also the later uh, hip hop uh, community that sort of, I mean, Burroughs's voice is so singular and unique. If anyone has ever heard it, it it's, um, you won't forget it. And it's got a hypnotic kind of quality and just sort of made for dope beats. And so you have a sort of interest in that regard, like the sort of <clears throat> not many uh, literary titans of the 20th century were, you know, have the second life as an audio as audio artifact. Um, but that's very Barosian as well. The fact that he himself can be cut up and reassembled <laughs> in such a way. But I but I think that, you know, here, too, he's kind of like a permission slip for artists to experiment 
with nonlinear um, presentations of their art, which in music, you know, it, it kind of comes up against the popular marketplace dictates around tunefulness. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the, the th- one of the types of music that Burroughs legitimately loved was the music of the uh, Jujuka, the master uh, Jujuka musicians, master musicians of, um, of Morocco. And there's like, the reason I messed up that name is because there's actually like two competing uh, sort of groups, uh, historic groups kind of competing for the right to call themselves that. The master Um, musicians. Yeah, of Dijuka. And, you know, this is sort of ceremonial. um, It has, you know, kind of has indigenous uh, magical uh, and folk ritual stuff uh, baked into the cake. I mean, you find that in... The, the music of indigenous peoples all over the world. And it's a beautiful and powerful thing. I mean, there's a lot of that kind of communal energy is directed, you know, for purposes of, of healing and, and tribal preservation and so on and so forth. Um, but Burroughs, I think, just was really just taken by, entranced by, you know, it's hard to um, take in at first as a listener. It's just a cacophony uh, at first. Um, and, you know, I thought, of another uh, writer, H.P. Lovecraft, and the um, infernal piping of <laughs> Azatoth or whatever, you know, because they have these flutes that are just sort of shrieking, shrieking, shrieking flutes. And the percussion is very uh, um, temperamental. <laughs> and sometimes it, it, it builds to such crescendos that, you know, if you squint, you can see how it's like black metal or something, you know? It, and And so I think... For whatever reason, Burroughs was responding auditorily in his <laughs> it is creaky, weird, uh, addicted synapses to the to that cacophony, uh, and he listened to the Jujoka uh, musicians right up until the end of his life. It was one of the things that he actually truly loved. But I think that there's a you know a lot of ways that people can connect to Burroughs, and for example, Jujuka was one way that we connect the Stones to Burroughs through uh, Brian Jones, who, you know, I think very unfairly appropriated uh, the Jujuka musicians, and you know, part of that that sort of appropriation is the reason that you have uh, some of this discord among um, you know the historic performers of this music, you know, <laughs> you introduce the uh, capitalism to it and boom. Uh, anyway, um, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, different folks can take away different things from Burroughs. He's, his literary executor, James Grauerholtz, told me, you know, he's kind of like a mirror and they all see something different. Uh, or maybe they see not entirely, totally different things. But, you know, Lou Reed saw, you know, gritty, junky, you know, street reportage in this sort of totally scuzzy, Chandler-esque kind of hard-boiled, uh, but poetic and sometimes tender way, right? That's what Lou got out of it. So he came out with, let's, I'm trying to think. So like in the 90s, my exposure to William S. Burroughs was this, it was a big volume that contained Junky Queer and Naked Lunch, but I never made it to Naked Lunch back in the 90s. I only read Junky and Queer, but I don't think uh, Queer had been published up until maybe that point. Yeah. That's right. It and was so, 
I'm going to get it wrong. Probably. I got to go back and look at my own book. I think it was like 80 in the eighties actually. Okay. But like those first two works are very gritty, you know, like that's him as a young man, as a heroin addict in New York city. Yeah. Among other places. Yeah. Um, and, and that's absolutely right. They're, they're much more conventional. Um, you know, they do have their odd bits for sure, but you know, you can comprehend them as, as, you know, even if they are taking the form of, of vignettes, you know, you can comprehend them as, as chapters or even Senate or, or paragraphs or even sentences. Whereas when you get to the actual cut up works, they are quite challenging. You know, the Nova Express um, and, and those um, later works are, are tough slogs because they break so aggressively with our conditioning. You know, as readers. That's my experience with those. So the the Nova trilogy, I think. So you've got like uh, the Nova Express, the ticket that exploded, and there's another one that I can't think of. But here's a question for you: Do the the Western books? That's another trilogy, and I can't the ever keep them. Westernlands, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Do they feel like cut ups, or are they more traditional? Narrative. The Western Lands itself is one of my favorite um, works by him. And, you know, I don't sleep with a copy of Naked Lunch under my pillow. This was one of the things where, you know, I felt that I could, I was in a unique position. I was a fan for sure. You know, I had my time in the 90s and I talk about it, uh, you know, about the impression that this stuff um, made on me at the time. Um, but, you know, when I'm when I'm looking at all of these pieces and how they could come together, part of the thrill of it is really just trying to figure out how, you know, how to thread that into a into a narrative. You know what I mean? So I'm probably yeah. doing Burroughs a great disservice by reimposing narrative. <laughs> he would curse me, <laughs> or maybe he already has because I have to talk about him all the damn time. Um, sorry, William. Um, I hope you're at peace in the great um, gray goo. <laughs> Which is, I think, where you want it to be. Have, well, time, let's start. have a good time in the formless realms. <laughs> Your timeline is really interesting because you do, you start the book with Kurt Cobain, but you have David Bowie on the cover. Could you talk a little bit about some of those choices? Yeah, and then you know, in, 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 also. talking about yeah. writing. Yeah, that's like dancing about architecture. But for sure, you know, I wanted to start with something, you know, that felt a little bit more contemporary because of Burroughs dies in the mid 90s. Um, you know, I make a case for how his influence has persisted in in some sense uh, subliminally, which I think he would really appreciate, you know, uh, and, and in some cases overtly who's flying the flag. But, um, you know, folks like Thurston Moore are still flying the flag. And you know, folks will be influenced by Thurston Moore and, and, and uncover this. And maybe, you know, they'll come across this book and, and, and have some type of roadmap. But starting with with Kurt Cobain was um, was in part because, you know, it felt more contemporaneous, um, but also because there's some heart to it. You know, this was a real uh, connection that was made, um, you know, because a lot of folks wanted to just do the pop in, see the Pope of Dope you know, scored the cool points, go to the bunker in New York. You know, there was probably an aspect about Kurt that's exactly like that, for sure. But Kurt really thought Burroughs was a profound artist and a visionary artist. 
And he was no fly-by-night admirer, you know? And I talk about, a little bit about that in, in the book. But I was lucky to talk to, um, to Cobain's road manager at the time, who was his best friend. I mean, he was the guy that was kind of keeping him, keeping things going. Uh, at the time that Burroughs went to Kansas, Lawrence, Kansas, to meet uh, William. And the lot, his memories were just so touching, you know. But it was clear how meaningful that interaction was to Kurt. And there's just something sweet about that, but it's ultimately tragic. Uh, and then, of course, you know, you have Burroughs who had, you know, at a couple of points commented on it, and he was genuinely fond of of Kurt Cobain, you know, from that that one impression. They stayed in touch. William would send him birthday cards and art <laughs> that he made. And I think that, um, you know, as, as Alex McLeod told me, his, uh, Kurt's um, uh, manager, um, you know, Kurt sort of saw William as a survivor. Like, you know, there's something to that. Like, wow, okay, I could get through this and I could, you know, still be just doing art that moves me and not giving a shit so much about being a rock star. You know, <laughs> It didn't work out that way. And um, from Burroughs' comments about Kurt, it was clear that he saw the unlikelihood <laughs> of Kurt persisting. You know, I don't, I don't mean to laugh. It's a kind of unconscious reaction. And there's a grimness to that, but there's also a sweetness to it because, you know, you see the generational uh, impact of, you know, this, of outsiders, you know, in, in their creative mediums. Uh, you know, reaching and connecting across decades of uh, experience. And yeah, I mean, remarkably, David Bowie was in the exact same position, you know, 20 years before, where <laughs> is he going to make it through this moment of addiction, you know, I don't know if it was, I, it might've been another book. I'm kind of obsessed with David Bowie right now, but like he was living on uh, whole milk, red bell peppers and cocaine. There's actually a David Bowie uh, food pyramid triangle with just those ingredients. Um, somebody <laughs> <laughs> and, and memed. <laughs> so that one's for you, David and William. Um, anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's all reported to be, to be the case. Um, I, you know, the interesting thing with Bowie is he, he, he continued to champion Burroughs like right straight through the whole way. Um, and, you know, I've heard that he kind of was messing around with, you know, cut up, um, techniques on his last album as well, Black Star. And, you know, Burroughs, um, I think for Bowie is, you know, Bowie's fascinated by fascinating people. You know, <laughs> you know, and um, he takes whatever he sort of can absorb and re-reflect of that fascination. You know, that was his modus operandi as an artist. Uh, but but Burroughs is something special, surely, in Bowie's personal pantheon. And, and you know, that's why he kind of goes back to the well or makes sure to sort of mention Burroughs 
when he talks about primary uh, influences on his own art and outlook. And, you know, I think for, for Bowie, ultimately, it's, it's less about the drugs and more about, you know, the desire to sort of uh, push, you know, perceiving consciousness into new terrain and to take back from that terrain uh, forms that might be fun to play with in the aesthetic, uh, in the realm of one's, you know, willful aesthetic. And I think on some level, that's a magical operation, just like, you know, the, the post-punks were interested in, um, in the industrial bands. And I think that that was probably kind of the, the ultimate thing that Bowie got from Burroughs was that, uh, you know, seeing a, a practitioner of that, uh, you know, however weird, intriguingly weird he might be, is even better. <laughs> you know what I mean? uh, and, and, you know, Bowie, early Bowie too, earlier Bowie, that he wanted to construct um, identities and lifestyles around um, his fascinations. And in, in a lot of ways, you know, Burroughs is not somebody whose lifestyle you'd want to emulate. Um, but perhaps in terms of uh, the transgressive nature of his art and the kind of commitment to um, breaking down forms, you know, stale forms. I think that is really the through line for a lot of the folks who I would consider true Burroughs acolytes, if there's such a thing. I also then end up drawing this kind of circle around a whole host of people. So um, this idea of the Gnosticism that drove Burroughs, but I end up with kind of this circle around like Crowley, Parsons, Philip K. Dick, like L. Ron Hubbard, you know, like, and then there's all kinds of strange and swirling connections among, you know, a whole cast of characters, but that are trying to figure out like some kind of existential philosophy you know, like, yeah, it's pretty half-assed <laughs> <laughs> as it were. Um, but, but you're not wrong. I mean, like the sort of, uh, the, the fumes from the, <laughs> the fumes from the, uh, Aquarian age, which, you know, I'm, I'm knee deep in again because of this other book that I'm writing, which, you know, kind of traces how, uh, Eastern ideas and practices became part of the cultural cross currents um, and how those evolved in praxis and approach with this whole other, you know, nightmare organization uh, <laughs> called the Grateful Dead. <laughs> well, so is that, are you still working on that book or is it now? Yeah. In oh yeah. I'm still working on it. And, okay. and it's really interesting because it's an opportunity to sort of um, – the only reason I bring it up is because I do think about that aspect from time to time. You know, this sort of perennialist uh, kind of erudition on one hand coming out of you know, Thoreau and the um, – and, uh, and then later into um, – well, anyway, I don't want to get into all of that. And then on the other side, you sort of have these kind of left-hand practitioners, these bad boys and occasionally girls, you know, who want to terrorize and taunt society with their transgressive, you know, 
whatever. Usually it's just like, can I say fucking? <laughs> Getting high and fucking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So you know, there, you, you know, it's hard to kind of come to this with you, you come to it with the objectivity of of you know somebody who wants to examine the histories and see, you know, what the the, the points of germination for, for those histories are. But on the other hand, it's a whole bunch of stuff. It's a whole bunch of hoo-ha, a lot of it. Um, but I do think that, you know, with Burroughs, there is a legitimate kind of <laughs> his left hand Tantra does what it does in his realm. You know what I mean? It just does. It works the way it works. And the people who are interested in that are interested in it. Um, but I don't really think that there was anything particularly intentional about this on his end, other than this kind of, what is the technology that's going to allow me to fight back against this dualism that he invented for himself called control? Probably, as you know, a competent psychologist might tell you, as, a, as an avoidance technique, uh, uh, because if he is not culpable for, you know, his actions, ultimately, then he's off the hook for, you know, shooting his wife. Yeah. That might be one way to look at it. I'm not saying it's the way. Um, but regardless of what, you know, he, this was his like sort of singular focus, you know, uh, creatively. Um, and I think, um, I think it consumed, a, he was a, he was a very much a magical thinker. And I think it consumed, it was a mania you know, uh, for him in some ways, uh, fighting back against control. What is control? It's basically anything that, that represents, you know, establishment at, at a certain level form itself, you know, and there's something really interesting in that. And like, it's like the, the ultimate negation. He is the, you know, ultimate biodegrading agent, you know, which really kinds of fits in with a sort of grosser, squirmier centipede, stuff in his books you know this is this is <laughs> it's a dissolving agent you know what i mean <laughs> mugwump jizz is a dissolving agent uh and and so <laughs> you know i i think that for him there's no great strategy beyond that he's just looking for the thing that's gonna make it happen you know and so, that's why he's a heroin heroin <laughs> 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 well, it was interesting in reading your book because earlier uh, around the holiday season, I, I was reading a, a, uh, the new Cormac McCarthy, and I think they're somehow in, in um, alignment on the idea of language as a virus, you know, like that the unconscious is kind of like the animal operating system, but the language is this thing that's put on top that makes us unique but isn't you know it yeah. it's still it's name, still name something. and form name and form it's a conceptual aggregate the buddhists were onto this a long long time ago um absolutely um and it creates you know entrenched dualisms and it and and mind prisons and i think in some ways you know burroughs has all of these like unsavory kind of um methods and means but uh <laughs> But his goal is to is to go beyond um, the strict dualisms of language, for sure. Um, but language is the ultimate symbolic representation of of mental constructs. 
Well, that was 42. <laughs> that was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. Yeah. You've been listening to Casey Ray on 42 Minutes. More information about his work can be found on his website, rockandrollburrows.com, to which we'll link more information about the Sync Book, our guests, check out past shows, or subscribe to the podcast via Apple or via Apple Podcasts. Uh, please be sure to visit the website at thesyncbook.com. If you like this podcast, check out others. As currently, all of the Syncbook Radio archives are free. We also feature a great search engine. To help you find what you need, just type in Treefort, and over 10 years of shows will appear. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And whenever you hear these words, I am there. Yeah.